You're listening to episode 14 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Released in 1983, during the slasher movie heyday, Sleepaway Camp comes from first-time director and screenwriter Robert Hiltzik. Owing a lot to the likes of Halloween, and especially Friday the 13th, the film is set at a summer camp called Camp Arawak, where a number of students take part in various activities and social events. But as the summer rolls on, people start turning up dead. And it quickly becomes clear that, much to everyone's horror, there's a killer on the loose in the camp. Are you a big fan of slasher films? I do really like slashers, Wayne. I I loved them as a teenager. Actually loved them? Loved them. Loved them. It was one of the first genres, I think, that I was aware that this was a genre. Mm -hmm. And there was a formula to it. But the interesting thing is, the more you watch them... The more you appreciate them, because you see there's a history to them, don't you? There's a very long history, yeah. In fact, when I was doing research, I'm surprised it actually goes back to the 19th century, because in Paris, there was a theatre called, I think I'm saying this right, Grand Guignon. Yep, And it was horror plays. So they put these horror plays on, which were incredibly controversial. And have you heard of the Hayes Code in America? Yeah, I've heard of the Hayes Code. In a way, that led to the Hayes Code, because in America, they were so disgusted by this, this sacrilegious, blasphemous, horrible, violent show that they brought the Hayes Code in, which would last from, what, the 20s up until, like, the 50s, something like this, 30s well, to 50s? Well, the interesting thing about American cinema in the 20s was far, or in the silent era especially, was far more liberal than it, it became in the 50s. Yeah, in fact, if you watch Wings, the first Academy Award winner, when I watched it, there's actually a scene where you see, like, a, a woman's bare breasts in a mirror. You would not have seen that for another 30-odd years in Absolutely American disgusting, Wayne. Absolutely foul. Absolutely it's, vile. It's, it's, someone please think of the children yes please, the, the, the eyes protect the eyes <laughs> yeah but then into the 1920s because if you think with your 20s and 30s had movies like dracula and there's a film called the bat 1920s now listen to this uh this basic i'm guessing synopsis. that's a horror way yes listen okay, to yes. this people in a remote mansion are being attacked by a killer in a mask do they get off the one by one probably yeah i mean that to me sounds like a very stereotypical slasher movie yeah slashes have a definite formula for me as far as we want to go back to these Paris roots and that, mm. I'd say when we're talking about slasher, we can kind of appropriate it to about Peep and Tom in 1960. Mm-hmm. Peep Tom. Michael Powell directed, weirdly director of The Red Shoes. Oh, he was The Red Shoes as well. Because Peep and Tom almost killed off his career because it was seen as sleazy. Mm-hmm. Which is not a film you'd assume that the director of The Red Shoes would make. No, not really. Well, the thing is, the 1960, because you hadn't had... I guess the swinging 60s folk were still maybe a bit more conservative back yeah. then. But uh, also, because was Peeping Tom not 1960? 1960, same as same uh, Psycho. But Peeping Tom, interestingly, it's actually mentioned in Scream, Wayne, mm-hmm. because I think, I can't remember the character, but he says it's the first film to put the viewer in the killer's point of view. Mm, I heard about that. But Psycho was the first movie to ever show a toilet flushing on screen, and I would argue that's far more groundbreaking. Well, they're both quite horrific, aren't they? <laughs> it was paper they were flushing down the toilet, wasn't it? Do, do you prefer to be stabbed or shot on? I'm not sure. What? Oh, God. <laughs> I've 
no idea about that. But let's go back even further, actually. The 1940s, there's a film called The Scarlet Claw, which is a Sherlock yes. Holmes kind of mystery. And you know that classic shot in a slasher yep. film where you see someone's hand, you see the killer's yes. hand coming down like this over and over? That was apparently one of the first films, maybe the first film to ever do that. I hope his hand was gloved. Yes, I hope his hand was Funny that you mention that. Two years later, The Spiral Staircase features a woman trying to survive attacks from a black-gloved killer. What is all the black gloves? Why black gloves? I don't know. It just keeps coming the up. The Italians in... loved a black glove in the 70s. It does, because like I was going to say, as we've uh, addressed some time ago with Barbarian, it was a big characteristic of Jallo films. Jallo films. Well, Mario Bava's 1971 of Bay of Blood literally was a direct influence on Friday the 13th. Mm. Literally shot for shot kills Actually, were shot copied, shot kills. copied. You know when in Friday the 13th, whichever character is killed through a spear coming above the... Coming from under the bed. It's Kevin Bacon, that, wasn't it? Bay of Blood. Well, they, in Bay of Blood. What? When, when does a homage kind of blend into a rip-off? Into a rip-off, well. Basically a rip-off, basically, yeah. But yeah, with your 60s, it was, again, with things like in Psycho and Peeping Tom, it was, this material was previously unacceptable. But because Hitchcock and, who was the Peeping Tom director? Michael Powell. Because, yeah, because they broke these barriers, it paved the way for films in the 70s. For me, I think the first real early slash would something like Black Christmas. Well done, Wayne. Mm-hmm. I would say this is the first um, formulaic slasher. Which does not get the praise no, it should do. because it's always look- referred to as a precursor to slasher. But uh, why a precursor not the first one? Because if you look at a lot of its traits, it's got a lot of the kind of archetypical things. You've got a group, you know, a group of people who are all to, uh, isolated You've in a room. You've got a bunch of girls an isolated location, mm-hmm. a killer, off one by one. Exactly, with some what, bags over the heads, knives. I'm pretty sure we have killer perspective in this film as well. You know what it is, Wayne? What is it? North Americans hate Canadians. <laughs> and Bob oh, it's Clark. Canadian, Bob Clark. It, yes. Yeah. Man, he did Black Christmas and A Christmas Story. How does that And even... Porkies. And he, Porkies. He literally created the slasher, the sex comedy, mm-hmm. and a perennial Christmas classic. But then he finished his career on Baby Genius's too. Yeah, we pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, we? let's just speak. No, that didn't happen. Also, was 74 not the year of Texas Chainsaw Massacre? It was. Mm, not a slasher. But Maybe not a slasher, but we're, still... we're getting into the territory. It's usually referred to as an exploitation horror, which... Uh, what, 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 why is um, Halloween not exploitation? Almost like a documentary a, exploitation, yeah. isn't it? Because of the way it was shot. But uh, yeah. yeah, as you said, Black Christmas, to me, look, I don't give care about much for all these labels, etc. To me, I'm going as that. That's the first slasher, isn't it? For me, yeah. Because you look at Especially Halloween. American Hall- Yeah, Halloween is basically, like you say, kind of an American Black Christmas, isn't it? And it led to, again, we say Halloween. And later on, we led to things like Friday the 13th, which will come up a lot. In this podcast? Well, well, if you look at the trajectory of slashers, in hindsight, what is referred to now as the golden age is 78 to 84. 78 being the key year because, obviously, Halloween. Halloween. Yes. So, in the, in this time, you're getting Prom Night, you're getting The Burning, you're getting My Bloody Valentine, mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street. So, Halloween is clearly set the, the pace here, hasn't mm-hmm. it? It's created the formula or popularized the formula. Because mm-hmm. as we said with Black Christmas in 74, the, the formula is almost set there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But Halloween here is, it's popularizing now a formula. Yeah. So when we get to Halloween, this is when people decide, right, this is what a slasher film is. Yes. And after this, we have so many films which 
don't necessarily copy the formula, but utilize the formula. Oh, no, they, they, copy, they copy the formula. <laughs> you have an opening, a shock and opening, what sets up the story. Mm. You, you're introduced to a, a bunch of characters. Most of them are going to be unlikable, so you don't care about them dying. A lot of them are often teenagers as well. That kind and of, they're always teenagers. That kind of yes. obnoxious teenager thing, yeah. And it led to things like Nightmare on Elm Street, which, yes. as we've said at one point, it kind of brought the supernatural element in. So did Child's Play as Child's well. Child's Play, yeah. To a point, yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, because like you say, from 78 to 84 the golden age the problem is after a while there was so many sequels wasn't it like so many of these things became franchises because they cost very little to make and they almost guaranteed turned a profit well the slashers in the late 70s early 80s was almost like you know how we referred to in our creep episode the found footage genre it's almost the equivalent it's where filmmakers could make really cheap work and maximize a profit Exactly. Even series nowadays like the Saw movies, because they don't yeah. cost very much, you can make... Again, you just need to build that brand, that recognisability. Are we getting that old, Wayne, that these days refers to 20-plus years ago for the first Saw? I hate when you see that. When someone like yeah. shows a picture, this was 20 years ago. Like, oh, no, it wasn't. This was 10 years no, ago. No, Saw can't be that old, no. Oh, it's, it's 2003, was it? Yeah, Good so God, we're yeah, almost 20, 20 years, years ago, Wayne. That's terrifying, but yeah. but That's from, the equivalent of 83 to 2003. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's been a while now. It's, it's grim, but for me, the thing with these slasher films is they start off good, you have a good, interesting idea, but again, then they just milk it so much and things go off the rails. Like the Friday the 13th, Jason went into space at one point. As you do. So Jason X, yeah, they went into when space. When you've got no one else to kill, you yeah. look for aliens. So, ridi- <laughs> so, so ridiculous. You know what other franchise has done that? F- Fast and the Furious. Did they go to space? They went to space in the last one, yeah. I'm so glad they missed that one. How did they get it on? How did they, where did they go on the next Interestingly, one? talking of space, is Alien a slasher film? Mm. It's referred to as a haunted house movie in space. Well, it's a formula. You have a creature. Mm. You have the bad guy, literally. Yeah. You have a group of people trapped in a location. Mm. And are they off to one by one? They are off. Well, they are off one by one. Makes sense. I actually rewatched Alien. I think so. Was last week. That still really holds up. It does hold up. It's a great film. It is a fantastic film. Yeah, it's brilliant. And then you obviously have in the nineties after you had all these films that we mentioned: Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the Thirteenth, My Bloody Valentine. You had the nineties resurgence. Yeah, and this is where the kind of self-referential humor came in because, especially with Scream, directed by Wes Wes Craven, Craven, a horror maestro, where. It's like they're making a film. It's it's its own horror film, but it's also making fun of its influences, you could say. Funnily enough, though, Wes Craven, I'm trying to think how many years, maybe a couple of years prior to Scream or a few years prior, done A New Nightmare, New Nightmare which yeah. was a meta take on the whole A Nightmare on Elm Street. It even featured the lead actress, didn't it? Yes, it did. They were pl- literally, they were playing themselves. Yeah. They weren't the characters, they were playing themselves. And in the, the world of A New Nightmare... Um, a Nightmare on Elm Street was fictional, but mm-hmm. now it comes to be permeate real life. So you had the era of slasher fic- flicks, and then we have the era of metaphysical slasher flicks, basically. Yeah, the whole meta horror. Yeah, but then, uh, then Scream even did the same thing because Scream is now, what, we have five films now? Five films. I haven't watched recently, any after yeah. the third one, yeah, but no? it, it's the same thing. It's like they have this great idea, but they just make another film and another film. I'm pretty sure, did Scream, I think Scream 2 actually made fun of films that have so many sequels. Well, there is that scene when they're trying to name what sequels are good, and I think we kind of settle on Terminator 2 and Godfather 2. Yeah, those things come up. Aliens as well. The same things come oh, up yeah, over aliens, and over again. Yeah. But yeah, for these, but for Slasher, it's got an incredibly rich history. I think for for me, a lot of the franchises are run into the ground. But in the 90s, what you would find as well with the resurgence of the Slasher 
craze, they were a very different take. They had the formula. You had the opening at the start where something horrific would happen and it would lead to the people being killed off one by one. But what you kind of got was an appropriation or a change in politics, whereas the 80s was kind of... Slashers were almost, for as sleazy as they were in the 80s, there was a conservative outlook. Mm -hmm. The more permissive, the more liberal the character was, the more they were killed and the more chaste Mm -hmm. uh, victim usually survived. Yeah, with the with the, the trope again, they made fun of this and screamed that the virgin is the one who survives. Yes, the virginal one, yes. And mm-hmm. the, actually, the final girl term wasn't actually referred to until the early nineties in a book by Carl Clover. She made she wrote a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws: Gen- <laughs> Gender in the Modern Horror Film, and that's actually where we got the term final girl. So, what the hell did they refer to? Were they referred to in the eighties? The virginal girl? I have no idea. I have no idea. Because would you argue that Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the most famous ones? Oh, she's she's kind of we can pin her up as the original scream queen. She is the scream queen, isn't she? She's the original. She's the goat. She is, yeah. So, how does Sleepaway Camp fit into all of this? Because released in 1983, that would place it towards the tail end of this slasher movie boom. Tail end, Wayne, but we're still in the golden age. We're still in the golden age, and it's following the tropes that have already been set up. Because obviously at this point, we've had Halloween, we've had Friday the 13th, and for my money, this is going the Friday the 13th route. Mm, it very much, yeah. It's, it, that's very evident. I think that's... He, the dire, Look, the director says the, the summer camp idea was so they could contain it to one location for cheap. But I think, really... There's a good reason that he's going the Friday the 13th formula because Friday the 13th was made very cheap, mm-hmm. but it made uh, it was very successful, M- most successful slasher film of that year. Yeah, well, this one was it was directed and written by a guy called Robert Hiltzik. Robert Hiltzik. Robert yes. Hiltzik. Who do you know? What he does now. He's a partner in a New York law firm. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, but was he not just not long out of film school when he made this? He, he was in film school, and his idea for making this was he didn't want to be an errand boy after graduating, so he thought making a horror film would be the easiest and least expensive because as we've said this formula for making a horror film is very simple there is an art to doing it yes but the basis the core structure is very easy to replicate well one thing i love about slasher films and especially in the past right because it's so formulaic you already know beforehand where you're going Mm -hmm. pretty much but here's the skill knowing the formula knowing where it's going can you tell an interesting and captivating story when the audience already knows roughly where you're going to go? Mm-hmm. See, that's what's interesting to Tr- me. You mean trying to subvert those expectations? Well, you're taking something that is almost set in stone mm-hmm. and you're putting your own personal twist on it and you're saying, okay, we know where we're going. We know where we're going from A to Z, but let's see what we can do between A and Z. It's funny you mention that, actually, because when he wrote this film, when he conceived the idea, he wrote the beginning of it and the end of it first. So he essentially wrote A, a. and Z. And, and the, the rest, rest was it, just filled in. The rest of the alphabet was just kind of filled in as he went along. And the film was storyboarded, but the production fell be, uh, fell behind schedule so quickly, they were useless and had to throw them all out. Well, this film was just made for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, in about five weeks. I think five it was. weeks at Argyle, New York, camp. Yeah. So, so what was the original schedule then? Five weeks—that's a fast shoot. It is fast, but I mean, if you're working quite cheap, I mean, that's still over a month. It is, yeah. So, you, and we're shooting on film as well, if you think of it. So that's you're still running quite a high cost. Mm-hmm. 
But again, like because when say, you're in, to, when you inflate three hundred fifty k for inflation, you, you're almost doubling that by now. Surely. By now, yeah, from the earlier eighties, th- yeah. So you're still it, it's still quite an expenditure for for what you see on screen, almost. Yeah, and much of the money actually came from uh, Hiltzik's mother, who died not long before production began, and the film is actually dedicated to her. Oh, so, is that who the dedication? Yeah, was? so her um, the money that she bequeathed to him actually made up a bulk of the film's budget. Can I give you a clap for saying bequeathed in the podcast? Yes, you can. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. There you go. Thank you. I'd like to thank the Academy. Well... Yeah, and so yeah, it takes place at this camp. I bequeath this award on you. Thanks. We're going to overuse that word now. Bequeath. So is it not true that Hiltzik actually attended the camp this is filmed at? Spent it as a child, yes. It was the camp he went to, which is not really something we have in the UK, do we really? No. Not so much. Well, we had like, we had school trips away somewhere, but it's not so much camps. You go for it, usually typically in the UK, and this is just from our own experience, you'll go for the weekend with a school, won't you? Yeah, we we would. You're not spending weeks or months there. No, we had school trip, it was maybe like four or five days or something like that. Because in the US, it seems like they go away for... A month or a few weeks at least, is it? I guess they've got more space, like way out in these kind of like these very far out locations. Oh, they're just glad to get rid of their kids for a few weeks. Probably, yeah. Although I'm assuming Hiltzik's experience at those camp does not match what happens in the film. Well, I hope the ending didn't. (laughs) Certainly not, yeah. And speaking of the ending, let's go to the beginning, because that's what Robert Hiltzik did. He did, and let's go. (laughs) We're A to Z. So beginning with A, like you said, very important with these slasher films to establish location. And you're establishing the driving incident, what's Mm going to set the events in motion. And... What do we do here? There is an opening tragedy. There's two uncles. What are they? They're uncles. Something like that. The yes. uncles of the. Ch- There's two kids, two dads, uncles, whatever. There's teenagers on a jet ski having fun. Mm-hmm. So what happens when? Well, we're at Camp, uh, Camp Crystal Lake. I'm sorry, Camp Arawak. Arawak. Yeah, and you've got these counselors driving around on this boat. The worst boat drivers ever. And you've got these two kids, and they're playing around, like you say, with these guys. Yes. And one of them decides to hand the controls over to the other. I'm sitting there watching this film say, don't do this, this is a stupid idea. Because they're both counsellors, aren't they? These two people who drive in the boat. Yes, they're counsellors. And I'm assuming the counsellor on the back of the jet, is it on the back of the jet ski as well, the girl? Yeah, getting pulled along, yeah. Yeah, they're just having, teenagers having fun. So one hands over to the other. Already you've got the Friday the 13th parallels because what happened, the tragedy in Friday the 13th, it was because of careless counsellors. Yeah, do you think in the 80s, mm-hmm. slasher films done what Jaws done for the war? Do you think people stopped sending their kids to summer camp? Because nothing ever seems yeah. to happen at Gouda summer camp. Well, do you know what the first thing I thought after I watched this film was? Yes. I, I thought, well, the lesson I took away from this film is don't go to summer camp. Yeah, you're, you're either going to be disfigured, dead, or... Traumatised in Traumatised in some capacity. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens here, because these two are driving this boat, not looking where they're going, because they're having this like stupid argument or something, and yes. they end up not looking, and there's two kids next to a boat, right? because their canoe is capsized. Yeah, well, there's one of the kids pushes the uncle off the boat in a, like a joyful... Kind of whoopsie, ha-ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way, yeah, yeah. So they fall out the boat... The teenagers lose control of the jet ski, don't they? Mm-hmm. Very clumsily. Very yeah. clumsily. And what happens, Wayne, here? Well, the jet ski crashes kind of into and over the boat, and yes. it kills one of the guys. One of the guys. Because one is, uh, one is on shore, so he's out of the way. Yes. But one is with the kids who have just fallen into the water, and it kind of zooms over them, and then it cuts to a kind of cheap body floating on the water shot. And the worst, Wayne, <laughs> the worst reaction from one of the girls... 
when she is screaming that something has gone awry. Mm-hmm. How does that scream go? I have no idea. I'm not even going to replicate it so terrible. Such a clumsily, badly done scream. Do you think that was our first film? I think it, probably for a lot of the people it was the first film, yeah. I'd hope so, Wayne. Yes, or, or just bad direction. I did see a review where it said this film is kind of working on a John Waters level. Oh, yeah. It's almost like they're airily acting in a film they don't know they're in. Oh, so it's like it's very like very subconsciously being acted in a yes. kind of way. Almost like they're existing in some kind of weird reality. Yes, it, 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 we're working on an alternative basis here. Essentially, yeah. Nobody's acting like they're... Real people, yeah. But this is the establishing. Yes. This is the establishing thing. This tragedy that's happened, which again feels very much like what happened to Voorhees, because there he died on this lake because of neglectful counselors. Different scenario, but same kind of motif. Do we stop giving the counselor rules to teenagers, Wayne? Well, is this the takeaway? Well, nothing d- seems to go well when well, teenagers supervise other kids. Definitely don't give them to idiots. Well, so they were so unbelievably clumsy. Well, yeah, and that's but we've that's, all been teenagers, aye, Wayne. But that's our opening. And then we go over to a character called Aunt Martha. Now, no, no, you want to say this is eight years later now. Oh, eight years later, yeah. We, we, go eight year, we skip eight years, bit as, of a we time. All, as we always do. Yes, eight years later. I guess nothing interesting happened in that time. Well. And yeah, we go to this big lovely house and there's a lady there called Aunt Martha. Now, Dr. Martha Thomas. Dr. Martha. Now, what did you make of this performance? Right. <laughs> this is a lot to unpackage, Wayne. It certainly is. I have absolutely no idea what she was playing at. Do you know what it felt like? It felt like the direction she was she was being given, she was told to act as if she was in a completely different movie to everybody else. She felt like she was on an off-Broadway stage mm. play and she was acting for a huge audience I've, so they could see every physicality of her yeah. movement. I've been to cabaret shows where it felt like the acting wasn't this ridiculous. I wrote very eccentric, very weird. I don't even think that fully encapsulates it because she has this weird habit she'll say something and she kind of turns off and talks to somebody else who's not there or like she's talking to herself she's almost looked like you expect like a comic strip uh speech bubble to appear at the side of her yeah. like she's speaking or like a thought bubble yes do, 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 do. yeah and then some and she's says, looking into the distance that's what Aye. i kept thinking the whole time but we are also introduced to angela and ricky yeah who, who are, are kind of our main protagonists you would say basically yeah so angela and ricky were the two kids with the two uncles at the start yeah the two kids the on eight the years and, prior weren't they yeah and they're dressed up they've got their Camp uh, Camp Crystal Lake. I'm sorry, Camp Arawak t-shirts on. And the... Arawak's not quite as catchy, is it? No, it's definitely not. Or is it just because the film's not as up there as Friday the 13th? Ouch. Yes. It's kind of a, it, you know, it's like a kind of wish, you could say Camp Arawak is like a wish.com version of Camp Crystal Lake. Yeah, it, it, it's the Kickstarter version. Basically, <laughs> it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the attempt they made and got it wrong the but first time. But we say this because we love the genre. We love mm-hmm. the silliness. Mm-hmm. We're not taking the piss to disrespect. Oh, we're definitely never going to use the word silly again well, that word's never going to come up again maybe not Wayne but maybe. we will have another word what will come up yeah, <laughs> definitely is it our favourite F word it could be Wayne it could be we'll find it somewhere yeah. so Dr Martha Thomas and I thought is her whole purpose here or the main purpose of this scene because she's a doctor mm-hmm. I have no idea how she's still got a licence but she's apparently still a doctor so she's give them their medical physical to mm-hmm certify that they can go to the camp. And she says, just be careful not to tell anyone how you got them. So, right, without giving any of the ending away, is this scene just to facilitate Angela's secret? Is this to plant what is this to plant a seed for something later on? I think it's so Or so another an outsider doesn't know Angela's secret. Therefore, the audience doesn't know this. Yeah, so there is something to suspect for later on. Yes. Yeah, it's a very Is that what we're going for? I think that's what it's supposed to be. 
Is this what you would call foreboding? Foreboding, <laughs> foreshadowing. We kind of use them words interchangeably. Have you noticed, Wayne? Yes, we absolutely do. We just love those words so much. We just love them so I much. Can't, I can't stop. I can't stop. And you, using you couldn't them. help yourself. You had to be the first, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, absolutely. We pick movies based on how many times we can use the word foreboding. That is foreshadowing. actually how we pick a film. That's how we pick a film, listeners. Just, just so you know. So, so we piss off to Camp Arawak. Mm-hmm. And okay, in uh, slasher tradition, right? Mm-hmm. We're very much set up when we meet our cast of characters yes. that apparently nobody's to be likable. Because the chef, mm-hmm. Artie, is waiting on all the kiddies coming. And he's so blatantly aw- an awful character. Can you make this character in a post-Harvey Weinstein world? Mm, well, as long as you give an extremely painful death. I suppose because Artie is... Um, could you call him a paedophile, Wayne? Definitely, I would definitely call him that. I would definitely call him He's a diddler, he's a creep, he's a paedophile. Because when the kids are arriving at camp, he says, young, fresh chicken. Mm-hmm. You know what I found even weirder than that? The fact that the other staff members... Laugh are, it off. They're not actually repulsed by this. He's like, they're too young even for you. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, it, it's like a, it's like just a funny character trait. Oh my God. Oh my, is he adorable, that pedophile? Oh my God. Where's he? Oh, he's in the kitchen alone with children oh again. Oh God. Like, that, <laughs> that some guy. Like, oh man, oh, what are we going to do about him? Also, something I found funny at this... They're going to a summer camp, right? Did you notice how orange a lot of the leaves were? Yep, I did. It was autumnal leaves. Autumnal, because apparently they painted a lot. Of, they painted a lot of the leaves green or something like. Oh, they painted them. Did they? I think they painted a lot of leaves green. Yeah. So it's the opposite of Halloween, where they painted them orange. Basically, yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. Homage. Homage. They're painting leaves. We were just doing the reverse, the opposite. Yeah. And Angela and Ricky come to this camp. Did you not think? I thought at this point, there's a very diverse group of age ages. range yeah it's really strange because i'm sure we went to like like when we were kids we went to some kind of disco when we were like 11 or something and there were like 17 18 year olds there that's yeah. a for that age that's a big age gap it is a big age gap do you think it's intent were they supposed to be that older or have they just shoved in a few um adults is it so they can more be the kind of overbearing bully douchebags Maybe. that these, these so they look like the bigger kid unless these, there is a big age range i don't know like when, these movies require look Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say it once, and I'm going to stick to this assertion. We're not American. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an assumption. That's the truth, damn it. It's the truth, and we're going to assert that truth. We're not yeah. American. I and don't then, know how these camps work. Yeah. So if anybody knows, please drop a comment just, just or comment something. Does this happen at Does, your camp? Do, do, are you usually stick, stuck with a creepy chef called Artie who yeah. likes young, fresh chicken? Tell us all about it, yeah. But we have Ricky and Angela here. Ricky is obviously the more outgoing, the more friendly of the two, because Angela's not said a single no, word yet. Angela, we, Angela doesn't speak. I did notice that she she's had. Uh, she's got a name on her hair clip. I don't know why I noticed that detail. I just did. <laughs> is that not quite flashy for a girl who doesn't speak? I suppose so, yeah. Why no, would you it's, w- it's so she can just point to a hair clip when someone ah, asks her Ah, so name. she doesn't have to verbalise. Uh, there you go, yeah. And oh, do you think Dr. Martha gave it to her? What? Dr. Martha gave it to her. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> is it, it's suggested here that this is not Ricky's first time at camp because he sees friends he's had before. Well, yeah, we, we were introduced to Paul. Paul's, Paul. I would say, Ricky's best camp friend. I don't know. if they ever, Do they have a relationship outside the camp or is this just somewhere each year they revisit old friends? That's what I'm trying to think. From, like, but they do like, oh, hey, Ricky, Paul, great to see you again. So I'm guessing it's been some time since they've seen each other. Because we're also introduced to Ricky's former love interest from the years previous, aren't we? Judy. Judy, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Here is one of my absolute favourite performances of the film, purely because of how ridiculous it is. She right. does She does what I could charitably call jaw acting. 
Oh, when it's all f- oh, like it's, facial suggestions to say what a bitch she is. There's so much jaw jutting out. She'll speak, and even when she's not speaking, she'll stand there with her mouth open. It's like, could you make this character look any more obnoxious if you tried? What do you, th- what do you think the direction that was from Robert there? Do you think it was just like, uh, uh, just uh, it's, he just gave up? I was like, oh, I don't know. Just jut your jaw and be it's an just, arse. Just, I want you to be as hammy as you possibly can. I want you to chew all of this scenery because there's a lot of it. She can't out-chew Dr. Martha, though. No, no, not quite. Does Even she though- actually have a berry as well, Dr. Martha? It was a berry, I think. I it think was, it was yes. a berry, wasn't it? This is cartoon character come to life. Yeah, see, yeah. these are characters, right? Basically, so, yeah. but you got Judy, and then Meg's another one. Meg's kind of more downplayed, but she's still cl- transparently a very nasty character. Meg is a bitch. Meg's a total bitch. Yeah, Meg is like queen bitch. Yeah. Judy's mini bitch in training. Mm-hmm. And do you know what's disturbing about Meg? Mm-hmm. She's the counselor. She is one of the counselors. Yeah. In fact, this is what I thought. I thought this is like a Lord of the Flies situation because a lot of the counseling is done by essentially other kids, other teenagers, so you're just letting them rule themselves. Do you know how you know Meg's a bitch? When we're introduced to her, she doesn't say her name's Meg. Well, she does say She says it's Meg. But, you know, she has to be an extra bitch and say it's M-E-G. Mm-hmm. Well... Well, I don't know, but I've never spelt Meg that way. Well, no. <laughs> Is there another way to spell Meg? With a P? I don't know. Oh, P? Oh, Jesus, I've no idea what's going on Pig. here. Yeah, but it's at this point, we're kind of establishing, bringing all the characters in. Yeah. I did, I did think at this point, the cinematography was a bit better than Friday the 13th. Oh, I don't know about better, but it, it was... The, the, the cinematography was fine. But was Friday the 13th maybe meant to look kind of grainy no, and but shitty? I think Friday the 13th's tone mm. fitted... Yeah. The film, like, it was a little darker. Yeah. Not, not, there's pretty much is it, there's not many dark scenes in this film. No, well, there's, that could, that a, there's, a, few, a, there's a few night thing. scenes, but there's a lot of day scenes. That but, could be a budgetary yeah. thing because it's obviously more expensive to shoot at night with the lights, etc. Yeah, but like you say, with again with Chainsaw Massacre, the aesthetic fits the tone of the movie. Yeah, yeah. But they're arriving here. We're essentially setting the characters up. At this point, you can have a pretty good guess at who's going to end up copying it in the film. One of the interesting things about this film, and which was a, uh, an actual a choice by the director, uh, Hiltzik, the characters who are the young teenagers, you know, your main ones, your Judys, your Rickies, your Angelas, they're actually the age that they're playing, mm. which was a conscious decision. They were. Because if you look at Friday the 13th, the ones playing, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds are, you know, they're... Early to mid twenties, yeah. Which is funny because with with the character of Angela, who's played by Felissa Rose, yes. this was her first film. She was only thirteen years old, so technically, when she f- made this film, she wasn't even allowed to see it. She wouldn't be allowed to see it for like five years. Oh, well, <laughs> silver linings to everything, Wayne. Yes, well, yeah. <laughs> she's actually very a- Felissa Rose, by the way, very active on the um like the on social circuit, media. Yeah. On the horror circuit, you see her all the time. I've seen her like pictures at conventions and people showing like her like Angela tattoos and stuff. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And she's she's been in lots of films. It seems to have. Well. It, yeah, this film is one of them films that has strangely um, transcended its time. And it's kind of it's almost become timeless somehow. It's, and almost, like, it's almost like Robert Hilsick made this film never knowing the kind of impact it would have. Well, But we're here trying to work out why it has any kind of why? impact. Why is the rev- relevance to these films? Yeah. I can see it. Mm-hmm. I don't... We'll get into if this one specifically we find holds up or not. Mm. But anyway, we're we're so we're introduced to these characters. Angela doesn't talk. She mm-hmm. also doesn't eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she has. There's a bit where it says she hasn't eaten in three days, which is 
She should not be hospitalised at this point. Yeah, she's she should be borderline, you know, on the floor rolling about in agony. Because most of her thing is just kind of sitting there, just looking at people. This is kind of her thing for, especially like the first act of the film. She just kind of looks at people. Yeah, she's very starey, very starey girl. Yeah, and she has some pretty mad stares. Actually, that's is how this is how Felissa Rose was auditioned. She was to do these creepy stares while imagining eating a candy bar. So why the candy bar, Wayne? I don't know. That that seems weird. Like, why not just do that angry face? I'd be kind of happier if I was imagining myself eating a candy bar. I don't know about you. Yeah. It's a pe- peculiar direction. It is a very peculiar direction. Maybe uh, Robert should have stuck in film school a bit longer. <laughs> to learn out how these things work. Yes. Yeah. So we're also uh, introduced to Ronnie. Ronnie. Ronnie is the muscular counsellor. I've noted him down as buff guy. Okay, buff guy. Right. So, I'm going to say this to you, Wayne, and this was one of the scariest parts of the film for me. <laughs> man <cool>. fashion. <laughs> man fashion. Is there any fucking excuse for those hot pants and crop tops I that men are wearing? I was just going to say, I bet you're going to say the clothes he's wearing. It is horrendous. It's bad. It's just this bad camp. Those Let's shorts go. are obscene, Wayne. No, the shorts. I have to say, one of the most offensive things about this movie are the shorts. They're like budgie smugglers without being budgie smugglers. Exactly. How is that possible? How was this ever acceptable? How was this a... Please, somebody tell us. If you were of middle age now, did was this a look you wore? Were you wearing little Daisy Duke shorts yeah. with a crop top and you thought you were the man? Or again, cool? again, American listeners, American camp attendees, please yes. tell us, was this a thing? Because I have no idea, Wayne. I hope it never was here. But it was a very shocking moment yeah, for me, Wayne. Yeah. And I've still to recover. Yes, you're still traumatised by that. I am still traumatised. Yeah. But at this point, this is where Ronnie, because he's talking to Angela, who's sitting with the girls who are being awful to her, and she, Ronnie takes her off to the kitchen. And Not Meg, a good idea. And Meg has a line here. They're talking about how quiet she is, Angela. And Meg says, if she were any quieter, she'd be dead. And I was sitting here thinking, uh, is that funny? I can't really tell. So that is Wayne. Mm. Foreshadowing. <laughs> there we go. It, you're setting up now. It's like, <laughs> is Meg going to offer? Mm-hmm. Is Meg? We're, we're, this is a very rudimentary way of setting up uh, suspects. Yes. But in a very unskilled way. Unskilled way, like, oh, well, she's going to cop it later. Yeah. Uh, she gets taken, uh, Ronnie takes her to uh, Artie the chef. Oh, Artie, a man, who, a man who should not be within 300 yards of children. Or food. Or food, to be for that I wouldn't matter. trust him with my food. That food looks awful. But Because uh, he takes her into the pantry, and again, this film, it's so unsubtle, takes her to the pantry, and he starts unzipping his trousers. Yeah. Uh, at which point Ricky catches them. And he punches a box. He does punch a box. He kind of takes his frustration out on the box. But Ricky and Angela get away. And it's it's a very, it's a very strange scene. It's like, have you ever wanted a character to die sooner into a horror film than this than this dude? He is set up just so you enjoy his death. Basically. I think that's why... You think that was the intention to make him so over the top that you want him dead as quickly and as painfully as possible. It's, it, it's, it's been a slasher trope from time in a mo- memoriam. It, yeah. Since the beginning of... Horror films, you're you're setting up people you hate so you don't mind them dying. Yeah, and I think um, I think Ricky actually kind of wishes death on the chef, and that actually happens not long later over the biggest uh, pot I have ever seen. The biggest pot ever because it falls on him, and uh, I think at this a point cha- he's standing on a chair. Yeah, he's leaning over the pot. Mm-hmm. A hand comes into view because mm-hmm. we're almost in POV here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, killer killer cam. Killer, we have, killer we have, cam. We have killer cam. Yeah. We have killer cam. We mm-hmm. um. God damn you, Michael Powell from Peepin' Tom. Yes. What have you done? <laughs> so he pulls the chair, mm-hmm. or somebody pulls the chair. I didn't mean to say he. I apologise mm-hmm. for that. Yes. And uh, old creepy Artie clutches onto the pan, brings it down with him when he falls, and mm-hmm. 
well, burns himself to a crisp. There's a very long screaming scene. It's like they wanted to show off the effects. I heard they achieved the blister effects with like hoses on the side of him, which caused like things to spurt out or whatever. But oh. it takes a long time. Do you think it would have been would have made a bit more sense to have this? happen a bit later on like maybe kind of let the hatred fester a bit longer yeah because how long are we into the film we're, we're, we're not more than 15 minutes no, 15 are minutes probably less than 15 minutes in yeah it's like did the film just think that they just needed to have a kill quickly uh, there's a quote on a slasher film isn't there by by certain plot points throughout the film there has to be a kill you have to tantalise the audience that little bit. Mm-hmm. And this introduces another interesting element. The owner is uh, Mel. Oh, fucking Mel. Mel, worst camp owner ever. This is basically a camp run by awful people. Mel is literally anti-Semitism placed onto one person. <laughs> he pretty much is, yeah. And this was actually his he last film He is literally role. a Nazi character yeah. here. And this was his last film role as well, actually. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was See, actually- I, I, I really should have looked it up because I really recognised that guy. Did you? I think he was. He starred in a lot of... Um, uh, World War Two films. I think it was he was the kind of hard nosed, gritty captain or colonel or whatever he was. But this was this was his last film. And interestingly, because he's at this point he's kind of paranoid. This is going to affect. This is going to affect business. So that's kind of a Jaws reference, I suppose. I I am glad you mentioned that. Wayne. that was my my thought exactly. He is like the mayor in Jaws, mm-hmm. but even worse. Even worse, and on a shitty summer camp as well. And he's anti-Semitic while being Jewish himself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he hushes up the accident because old uh, creepy art, he's bandaged, isn't he? Ba- bandaged yeah. and stretchered away. Interestingly, Is he dead? Is he dead? No, interestingly, he's one of the few people, few intended victims that actually survives in this film. Oh. Which is weird. He's the one you want to die most, but maybe him being in pain is you know more satisfying. Old, old Jolly Ben Jolly over ben, there, he's... Um, yeah. He's promoted to cover up to cover up the incident. Yeah. Is, Apparently, he could be bought off just yeah. by a little promotion and a little bit of a pay Is Ben portrayed as a very simple character because he seems to have these? He seems to be given these very simple mannerisms and like this very smiley, very jolly way of talking. For some, reason. it seems this weird way. Have you noticed in films of a certain era and? There is that racial component where I don't think, or I don't know, there's almost a stereotypical older black guy yeah. where they play like an all shucks, yeah. you know. Almost like, would that, would that not have been referred to as like an Uncle Tom character? Yeah, and yeah. I, it's not because the character they're self-portraying it, it's how the character's written. Yeah, it is written because the other, there's, other, there's other like uh, characters in that scene, they're black as well, but they don't, they don't act anything like this. I don't even think we really hear them talk, do we? Because they're like kitchen assistants yeah, or something? Just, yeah, they're glorified extras without yeah. uh, any lines, aren't yeah. they? It just seemed weird, especially since Ben doesn't really have much to do with any of what's going on in the film itself. Yeah. But going back to what we were saying about the older and the younger kids, there's something of a rivalry between them because they have a lot of like baseball games together, don't they? Yeah, we're, we're playing baseball and we're introduced to several periphery characters or there to facilitate the kills at a later point. We're introduced to Billy because Billy is weirdly... He seems older than the other kids. This is what we were saying. Noticeably older. He almost looks like te- a decade older than the rest of them. Yeah. So I don't know. Is he supposed to be older, like almost like a senior high school kid? Or is is the actor himself, for whatever reason, just a lot older than think, the other kids? I, he is, but it's very noticeable that he's so much older than these other Because at first I was thinking, is he a counsellor or not? Did you? I, I, maybe, but I don't think he is a counsellor. It's never established that he is. Because we also meet Jean. Mm-hmm. Jean, actually, we were talking about fashion crimes. Gene is this Italian American guy. Yeah. He's a counselor. Mm-hmm. He's got hot pants and he's got a crop top on. <laughs> yeah. He is 
the worst fashion victim of this film. He's the personification of awful fashion, basically. But he turned out to be kind of a good guy on set. Because, yeah, he's not a terrible guy. Yeah, because one of the kids, um, the kid Mozart, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was genuinely, because his thing in the film is he's kind of the butt a lot of jokes. They play yes. a lot of pranks on him. He was actually getting picked on in real life. Oh, and the he? actor who played Gene literally had to intervene to stop that happening. So, Well, he does look a lot older than them. Because he, he looks about... I know he's probably playing a late teens guy because he's the counsellor, but he, he, he looks well into his 20s. He's noticeably he? into his 20s. Yeah, he, he yeah. looks a grown man. Yeah, and we've got a lot of stuff going on with Mel and Meg. Mel and Meg. They're kind of the queen bitches, aren't they? Uh, kind of, yeah, but I don't understand why is Mel, like, why is Meg attracted to Mel? That's the weirdest thing. So Mel was the, is the camp owner. They, they, Mel's the guy covering up the death of Artie. He's the he's the oh it was an accident. And we should guy. say he looks about seventy. Yeah, he's or f- very late sixties. If he's not. he's the oldest person at the camp anyway. This is where we start to uh, start the plotline where Angela gets picked on all the time because she still hasn't said anything. No, she doesn't say anything because we're introduced to Kenny and Mike. Because mm-hmm. what would you say? They they're almost they're goofy themselves. Yeah, but they that they're. I suppose their structure in class politics mm-hmm. is a little higher. They're probably not the ki- they're probably the kids who may get picked on by the older kids, yeah. but they also could pick on the littler kids. Yeah, bullying hierarchy. Yeah, because Angela gets invited. Because people, this is a pattern where somebody will invite Angela to something. She'll not say anything. She'll, she'll stare at them, and they'll just get angry, insult her, and then just leave. And Ricky often is the one who intervenes because Ricky is her cousin, uh, Angela's cousin. Yes. Yeah. So Ricky is kind of the good guy here, where because he he's always in. getting to scuffles when people are mocking her, like yeah. Kenny and Mike mock her. And Ricky will kind of... Because Ricky's a little small guy himself. He is, yeah. I mean, but he has kind of decent... Obviously, a decent moral sense. Well, he's looking out for his cousin, isn't he? Because he's looking out for his cousin. And uh, Paul talks to Angela a lot. Did you feel like Paul was trying to be a kind of forced, oh, I'm a nice guy kind of character? Yeah, Paul's Paul's a weird guy. Kind of trying to insinuate We'll get into that later, because there's a scene later, and somebody else gets the blame, and... Mm-hmm. Paul's yeah. Paul's really in the blame in that situation. Yeah. There is a lot of that in this film. People getting people getting blamed for something they didn't do. But we do get our first line here from Angela when Paul sits with her, mm-hmm. and they're in like a social area, aren't they? Yeah, because they have a lot of these socialising events. Again, older and younger kids doesn't yeah. seem to work out very well. And Paul, when he leaves. Angela says good night, mm-hmm. and that's our first line in the film. And we're probably what would you say twenty-ish minutes into the film Something now? Like that, yeah. At that point, very appropriate that her uh, first words are actually some kind of goodbye. Well, she's she clearly has uh, social skills at yeah. some point because Angela seems she does seem like a very sweet character. Like the way Felissa Rose portrays her, she's very sweet, very sincere. She's got like she's a very, a, she's like an innocent. Isn't she's she? got like a very bashful smile, a very kind of bashful laugh. But yeah, this is the first thing she's ever said, and Paul takes it as well a very good sign because Paul's kind of he he almost looks like the budget budget Anthony Michael Hall, doesn't he? So you can kind of gather a picture if you've not seen this film, which I'm sure most of you have by now. But Paul's kind of an Anthony Michael Hall type character. Again, because these people keep picking on Angela, we get to a scene later on where uh, where it's uh, on the lake. I believe it is. Are you on about when Kenny's getting stoned and they go in the canoe? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Yes. Which they do the worst stoned acting, I might say, Kenny and Mike. It's not very convincing. <laughs> well, I'm guessing, these, well, these kids have never been stoned before, but well. maybe Hiltzik hadn't told them how when they just did it wrong. Because they, they tip, there's a canoe that gets tipped over, and who's the boy that's underneath the canoe? Kenny. Kenny, yeah, that's the one I... Because, well, Ke- Kenny takes this girl onto the lake. Mm-hmm. They're on the canoe. It's night time. This yeah. is after they're social. And he's rocking the canoe back and forth. Mm-hmm. 
and she's kind of playing, saying, "You better not tip us over." Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, dickhead That's what he's Kenny. Do, yeah. Yes, he he's thinks he's the hilarious stone guy. He tips the canoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he the canoe flips over, and Kenny is stays under there. Mm-hmm. The girl he's with has swam off. Mm-hmm. But what happens, Wayne? Well, he's all on his own, and he's singing a song for whatever reason. And then a figure pops up, like the back yes. of a head. And this is where I notice something interesting. Uh, he says to this figure, he says, what the hell are you doing here? It's clear this killer is someone these people know, but whenever they're face-to-face, they never say what their name is. It's always, what are you doing here? And, oh, it's you. One of yes. those lines, to keep the thing deliberately ambiguous. Yeah. But it's not what you would say in real life. You Did you, here's a question. Well, we we all kind of knew the ending, didn't we, already? I was going to say, before... I, I you, knew the ending, yeah. Could you have guessed it? Do you think it was quite obvious? I think the actions in the movie do make it obvious. Yeah. That's why... There's not a lot of ambiguity. You don't think this movie has a lot of mystery. Though there is uh, theories that there's something else afoot, Wayne. There is something else later on, yes. especially... Well, one of the camp counsellors, anyway, yes. has, a, has a theory. But this is basically... What does she do? She um, What does the killer do? Basically pushes his head under the water? It essentially drowns him. It just drowns him, basically, yeah. And so, next morning, a, the, a camp worker finds Kenny dead. Mm-hmm. To be extra horrific, mm-hmm. a snake came out of his gob. I thought that was a pretty good dummy, actually. That yeah, was a pretty good the dummy. dummy. Oh. The, 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 actually, the, the effect, physical effects weren't too bad, were they? Not so bad, actually, yeah. Well, Considering. Yeah, and this is the first actual victim. And we get Mel again. Yeah. This is where Mel is again. This is an accident. Yeah. And this is where it's like, all oh, right, fuck the mayor in Jaws now. <laughs> Mel's taken over he's as the worst authority figure in film. Because there's a cop there with him and he, cause oh. it, it, was, it was an accident and then somebody raises an objection and he says, it was an accident. Yes. So straight away, it wasn't an accident. So Would a, this be Wayne, the the cop with the dodgy moustache? This, this cop has a moustache. Yes. I don't know why we bothered mentioning that but I'll say it again. This cop has a moustache. He has a moustache. Mm. So they're talking will that, to them. Will that come up again later, no, Wayne? No, no foreshadowing. Definitely not. No, definitely no. not. No. But they're talking okay, to, so forget <laughs> about the moustache people. Yeah, just watch his, his. Oh, does he have a moustache? He does have a moustache. I, did, I didn't. I didn't Apparently, even, has a moustache. Didn't even notice. But he's talking. He to doesn't this, know even as a moustache. He doesn't even have a moustache. But he's talking to Mel and uh, Ronnie's there as well. Ronnie seems more concerned, but Mel's just like it's clear. Jaws, Mayor. Let's kind of brush this under the carpet. Don't tell anybody. Kind of situations. And the cops. The cops says, "Well, we need to wait for the autopsy to be performed." Cause yes. Because Mel's convinced. Oh, he drowned. Yeah, and did, oh, does Ronnie not say, "Hey, that that kid was a good swimmer"? Mm-hmm. He says, "I remember him being a good swimmer." But then again, remember from when, Ronnie? Yeah, yeah. When did you remember this? But then again, even the best swimmers in the world could still drown. It's still a possibility. But I guess that's the best defense they have, really. Is uh, Ronnie suspicious? Mm-hmm. He's the only one who knows Ken, uh, Kenny was a good swimmer. S- the second Mel yelled, "It was an accident!" I would have been suspicious from there. Yes. Mm. And this brings us on to a thing with Judy, because Judy comes back. Honestly, I quite liked when Judy was on screen. I quite liked how Karen Fields is the name of the actor. Oh, yes. And just how she overplays it. It's all mean stares, jutting jaw, emphasizing... Hands, with, hands on hips. Hands and, on the hips. Yes. Bulging eyes. She's like a cartoon bully. She's like a bully from a Looney Tunes cartoon. I think we meant... Did we not mention that before? A lot of the characters in this are caricatures. They are. But then again, you know what's... You have a good idea what's going to happen to them anyway. So it's almost like you're just waiting for the inevitable. So... Is this an attack on the American film school system? <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. But it's like any time you have movies like this that have groups of kids together, there's always bullying somewhere. Yes. It's like these situations are just not monitored very well. No, but the, I'm on about the director, Wayne. Mm-hmm. This guy went to film school. Oh, yeah. And I think he graduated. Mm-hmm. Well. Possibly. Well. <laughs> just had a bad experience. Yes. 
Yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's. Uh, I know Judy's very angry at Angela because is she, does Judy fancy Paul? Is that the thing? Because Paul keeps talking to Angela. I think. Well, I don't think Judy fancies Paul. What I think it is is Judy's jealous that Paul's given a girl a f- uh, attention that isn't Judy. She's annoyed. She's annoyed that somebody like that Angela's getting attention because she doesn't yes, like Angela. She basically. has to possess Paul because Paul doesn't want to possess her. Is he? Yeah, Liz, uh, pretty much. Yeah, because Paul and Angela have kind of a nice thing going on, but there's a bit where Paul kind of leans forward and delivers these two awkward kisses and the kind of dynam- I, I the dynamic they go to watch there. a film at the social don't they do they? a film in at the social, social yeah. I want to know what that film was yeah. what were they watching Friday the, Friday th- the 13th Friday the 13th yes yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that, that was their uh, preparation for the film I'd imagine yeah. just uh, oh hey kids watch Friday the 13th yeah. beforehand Mel says remember it's just a movie this kind of stuff doesn't happen <laughs> yes do we, do we ever actually do we ever get the crazy guy who warns everybody no Oh, what you mean? The yeah, you, you know, the, Friday the Thirteenth. You have yeah. the almost like oh, he's not hope, but yeah. is he a hope? The drunk-looking guy yeah. at the start, the kind of character that people would take seriously if they didn't act so crazy all the time. Yes. Just, oh, it's just old Bill. He's always like that. Mel's the opposite. Yeah, basically Me- is. Yeah, Me- nothing ha- bad happens to Mel. Everything's an accident. Everything's an accident. Oh, he's yeah. beheading up. No, that's accident. <laughs> he just couldn't swim. Yeah, he just wasn't a very very good yes. swimmer. Yeah, um, but the next day. He, well, he walks her to the bunk after the film. The bunk house, And yeah. that's where they kiss, don't they? To the awkward kiss. And then she kind of runs off. Yeah. And it's at that point you realise Paul isn't kind of as decent a guy as he was kind of making himself out to be. Yeah. About this time in the film, especially, the tension, isn't it, between... Because Meg and Judy have pretty much teamed up as, like, team bitch, haven't they? Again, they're the kind of the, like Jack from Lord of the Flies. They're the people who are kind of lording over this. And they've got it into their heads for whatever reason that Angela is easy pickings mm-hmm, and they just essentially berate her there's nothing Angela can do right the girls are playing volleyball but she's sitting on the side and she's I think she speaks to Paul is it yeah Paul comes and over. they chastise her it's like for for talking to boys oh does she not have to yeah. what's the difference of the rules or she won't go swimming when they're going yeah. swimming Judy's like how come Angela gets stuck to the boys all day delivered yes. like that yes I mean that's probably a better performance Wayne <laughs> Yeah, he's probably more. You are more convincingly playing a Judy. I've been practicing. Judy I'm, played I'm, Judy. I'm practicing my Judy over here. Of course, we lovingly say this, mm-hmm. so nobody, you know, give us shit. We like these films. Mm-hmm. We're just having fun with they're them. Good. They're good. They're good fun to talk about for what yeah. they are. But um, yeah, but this is where Meg was crazy, at Angela, because anytime these counselors try to scold Angela, she just looks at them again. This kind of death stare, and she just goes back. She starts shaking like that's like actual assault. Well, she, she really should be relieved of her duties at this point, but it was an accident. It was an accident. It was an accident. You can't shake somebody on purpose, Wayne. Have you ever, <laughs> never known this? Angela was a good shaker. Yeah. A good shaky. <laughs> shaky. Shaky. She, she was a good shaky, yeah. So, yeah, oh, but oh, we're almost introduced to our third death now, Wayne. Uh, Bill. Well, yeah, Bill. And it wasn't his crime against fashion. No, it wasn't his crime against fashion. This is a different crime. Mm-hmm. And do you know why he dies? Mm-hmm. He needs to take a wicked dump. Yeah, he needs to take a dump. He, di- he has mm-hmm. to take a dump. This mm-hmm. is hot pant Bill over here. Mm-hmm. He needs a wicked dump. He goes into the stalls. Mm-hmm. And so, some hands creep on. They put like a, the, the thinnest looking pole mm-hmm. between doors. You could have easily kicked through, but we mm-hmm. will mention that. I yeah. didn't mention it, but I'm not going to mention it again. Here's the thing here about these kills. A lot of what we see from the killer is the hands and the arms. Now, knowing who the killer is later on, does that look anything like the arms? Because a, du- a double was obviously used, but... 
it wasn't even close to being what the actual killer's arms would look like. Are you saying the hands could have been an opposite gender? I'm saying they could have been an opposite gender. But could that not tie into the ending? Yes, it could possibly tie into the ending, If you yes. think so. Mm-hmm. Again, there's there's all the speculation, yeah. Do you know, Wayne, this film is so subtle and mm-hmm. so nuanced. Incredibly, <laughs> incredibly complex. Incredibly <laughs> complex. You just yeah. don't know. But uh, it's a bee's nest. It's a, bee, a bee's nest. The, the windscreen... Mm-hmm. Is torn on the back of the shitter. Seems very but, convenient. Oh, I'll just go and find a bird's, uh, find a bee's bee, nest. Bee's nest, and the bee's nest is thrown into uh, the shitting stall, mm-hmm. which he's unable to get out of, despite the flimsy pole. Bef- yeah, it, it looks weaker than a bamboo stick. It does. Yeah, that would snap in half straight away. I think even in the shot when they're filming that, does it not even splinter? It looks like it splinters. Yeah, I, I think they had to film it in such a way that that wasn't going to happen. Well, mm-hmm. also so, there's a, a roundabout this time because that's Bill. So Bill essentially again we have this kind of slow pan shot over him and he looks a mess. Again, practical effects not bad for for a practical chief. effects aren't bad. Yeah, but one of my co- points of contention for this film, mm-hmm. and I think it does play into some of the backstory of this film, mm-hmm. because the director Robert Hiltzik, mm-hmm. Hiltzik, he claimed himself he wasn't a horror fan. Well, he chose the right genre to make then. Well, <laughs> I think it was a money thing. Probably, yeah. His um, attitude to horror or his appreciation of horror never really went, went much further than his childhood, mm. where he'd gravitate towards Saturday matinees, films like Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Mm-hmm. And to me, when I was watching this, the, the, the way it was made, the way it was set up, the kills especially... There was no tension to the kills. Mm-hmm. You went from just your day-to-day life of the story and then straight to a death scene. Mm-hmm. There was no build-up. So there was no like escalation of tension. No escalation. You just went from zero to a kill. Mm-hmm. And then straight back down again. And straight back down, straight to the story. To me, there was nothing horrific about the mm-hmm. kills, really. There was moments like you could place it, like the bees, that's quite a horrific image. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, there was no build-up to it. Nobody is stalked in this film. Mm -hmm. Nobody is followed in this film. There's no suspense before a death. The only time we see a killer cam is basically when the deaths are... When the death occurs. So for you, it's not... This is not a scary film. It's not... uh, There's no terror or anything. It's essentially a camp, just a camp movie like a movie taking place at a camp which is punctuated by deaths. And I think (laughs) that is because the director doesn't have a love of horror. Mm -hmm. He's not well-versed in the genre. Mm -hmm. It's like he's watched Friday the 13th and just thought, okay, all you need is a Mm B-plot, for example, the Angela story, Mm -hmm. and then you just splice in a few deaths along the way. And therefore, it becomes a slasher, which it technically does, doesn't it? Basically, yeah. But what about you? Did, did, did you find anything scary, really? No, I wouldn't say I found anything scary or anything. I think it's more just being impressed with maybe how the kills were pulled off. But like you say, it's not like it's not like um, Michael, Mike Myers, Michael Myers, where you'll see the stalking and you see the build-up and you see him in reflections and shadows and stuff like that. No, I, I, I see where you're coming from there. And that's not a budgetary problem. That is literally, I think, in my opinion, I could be wrong, but the director himself has said he, uh, horror is not a genre he loves. And to me, that that is evident. You, you can see that lack of 
I wouldn't say respect for the genre, mm. but lack of being versed in the genre. So it's not a budgetary problem, it's a conceptual problem. It's a problem with how it's written and directed. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, the budget's not much different to the Halloween budget. Mm-hmm, yeah, but it's just, it's been done by someone who does not have the same respect for the genre, did, same love for the genre. Did you find that at all? Uh, I, yeah. There were, there were elements of that, yeah. Like you say, not a scary film. I think that's not why I was enjoying the film. Because so, yeah. I think I enjoyed this maybe more than you did, actually. No, I enjoyed it. Yeah, actually, this does lead on to, this was my favourite... Maybe not necessarily favourite scene, but favourite moment in the movie, because I'd say Ricky, played by Jonathan Tierston, he was my favourite performance. He was actually auditioned by the director by cursing at the director, by basically like cursing him out. Because there's a bit here where Angela's walking along past you know, the bunks, and the big, the bigger kids from the roof throw a water bomb at her. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Ricky comes out. And the thing with Ricky is, I think he's a very likable character. He's a kind of a troublemaker. He's a bit of a dick sometimes, but he'll stand up for his family. He's a lovable dick. No question, yeah. But he comes along and he curses out the big kids. And it's, I don't know why it's so funny. Maybe it's his voice's delivery. He's just, he's like, you fucking bastards, cocksuckers, pricks, you chicken shits. Yeah, when it's they're just, chucking the water. Oh, balloons. man, it's just the way he goes off and like Mel comes and tries to stop. Because Mel doesn't like. Well, Mel at this point, is he not starting to sus- suspect Ricky of the death. Yeah, he is. Because he yeah. says something like, I've known all along, I've seen the hate in his eyes, referring to Ricky. But the thing is, he's just, he's just getting angry when he's lashing out here, which is understandable. It's like Mel's just got this complete misplaced prejudice, you could say. We do get our uh, first fake point of view kill shot, though, jump scare. Mm-hmm. Because does Paul not go to meet Angela? Angela. Yeah. And he's coming up behind her, and it goes, you know, the whole point of view shot. Mm-hmm. And then we get our fake out jump scare. What like with a hand coming yeah. out? Yeah, oh, I can't stand. I can't stand those. It's it's the equivalent of when they think there's a monster somewhere and it's a cat that jumps out because they're meeting on the beach, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I think they have a little case. Mm-hmm. But she trips him, then runs away. Yeah, and she just she just bolts off. And like Paul's always kind of confused, like, oh, why did you run away? But we are in the next scene introduced actually to more, one of the more transgressive scenes of slasher films because mm-hmm. we have a flashback, don't we, mm-hmm. of two men, mm-hmm. two men, two men in bed together with two kids watching and laughing. Yes, with it, so them two guys making out. They were, yeah. They were the ones at the start, weren't they, with the yeah. two kids? Because at the start movie, I didn't even realise they were supposed to be a gay couple. Yes, I know. Well, you're not supposed to. Know. No, because they were just friends. But yeah, that's. But yeah, we find out that the one who died, the two at the start who got jet skied, the one who died was one of these uh, gay uncles. It was one of these, yeah, like. Were they uncles? I think they were. Were they relatives? It it's, was. The, I know a lot of people were confused about the di- uh, the dynamics of these. People have like written almost kind of think pieces on this film, talking about like the dynamics and what the kind of implications of this scene has. Like I, it was called up for being like transphobic and called up for being homophobic. Like again, because of like flashbacks like this. What did you think? I quite liked them because they're, they're shot. Um, like this, for example, takes place in a bed, mm-hmm. and all these these flashback sequences. The, the the whole surroundings of the background are pure black, aren't they? Yeah. And then you almost have, like, in the centre, the memory. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I didn't I didn't really have a problem with it. It, it felt, in a way, kind of out of nowhere. But, again, it, it does tie in when you've, when you've watched the, yeah. the whole film all the way through. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't like was, again, you know, with the killer cam and the hand reaching out, the yeah. film trying to imply that Paul was the killer. I don't know about you. There was never a second I thought... I had any suspicion that it could have been Paul that was doing this. It was a total red herring, I thought. What, do you think he was too much of an idiot? Mm-hmm. No, I just think... I just, too inoffensive? I just, I just why, did you not, why did you not suspect Paul? He just didn't seem to have that in his nature at all. Maybe he was a bit of a dick, but I didn't feel like he would ever do anything like that. 
He's a dick, but he's our dick. <laughs> <laughs> he's our kind of dick, yeah. Right. And, um, again, the next day, Paul confronts Angela. Is this Capture the Flag, aren't we? It's the Capture the Flag day, yeah. And again, Angela doesn't want to play. Paul's talking to her, and he gets kind of douchey about it, I thought. He's like, it's like, oh, you know, why can't you like me? Why can't you do this? And Angela's trying to kind of rebuff him, but he's getting a bit insistent. Because does Ricky and Angela not take off during Capture the Flag? Because Ricky comes up with some grand scheme. Mm, he's going to sneak through the woods or something like sneak that. Sneak through the woods. To, but would you not see them when he runs back onto the field? They've not seen enough horror films if you're sneaking through the woods anyway. Even hey, what did they find in the yeah, woods, Wayne? What did they find in the woods? comes across uh, Paul and Judy who are kissing. Okay, now, <laughs> now explain to me here, right? Mm-hmm. This is what I always find odd about films, right? Judy's a... We've, we've established Judy's a bitch, right? Mm-hmm. But... Judy's single. Mm-hmm. Judy's not interested in Angela in that way. No. So why did it become Judy's issue uh, from Ricky? Because Ricky says to Judy, you're a real scumbag, Judy. Mm-hmm. Why does he not have a go at Paul? Paul's the one who fancies Angela. Paul's his friend. Yeah. It is, a, it is a good point. It's like Judy is constantly caught in the middle of these things. What I did like about... I know she's been the bitch because she knows... Uh, Paul likes, Paul likes Angela. Angela, but why does uh, Paul not get the br- bear the brunt of the responsibility? He's the one who's into Angela. He really should do, shouldn't he? But what I did like about the scene, actually, there's a scene where a bunch of the characters, like Ricky and Paul and Angela, they go off, and there's a shot of Karen Fields' face, and she actually. It's probably the best bit of acting she does in the film where she actually looks kind of genuinely torn up about it. Do you think that's a little nuance to say, okay, Judy's, she's coming across as the kind of the bratty bully, but yeah. there's a bit of depth to her. Maybe there's yeah. reasons she's... There's, there's another scene a bit later where she has this kind of a moment of genuineness to show that she, yes. is, you know, she is like a real person. And I quite like that. It's, like, it's, a little, it's just like a little addition, but I think it did make a lot of difference actually in the long term but even to my point even when paul gets back to speaking to angela he says i don't know what happened she just wouldn't leave me alone yeah that's that's i don't know what happened is one the of the fuck, paul? that's one of the dumbest that's one of the dumbest i didn't know what happened you do know what happened you douchebag it's just it's such a ridiculous Maybe paul's the ultimate dick here he could be yeah it's like he's definitely the biggest one of the biggest dickheads in the camp anyway ah uh, 80s politics wayne yeah, 80s man. gender politics even w- women always bear the brunt of society's yeah. ills. It's so bloody unfair, isn't it? Do you know what I found funny, though? Mm-hmm. It, I think it's in one of the next scenes. And it was a, the most weirdest remark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Ricky's just walking through camp. Mel sees him, mm-hmm. and they're speaking. And Mel asks him, how is your time at the camp going, right? Mm-hmm. And Ricky says, it would be better if there were more guys around to get a ball game going. Mm-hmm. And Mel says, yeah, it's a shame so many had to leave. Two left, Wayne. Leave? Leave. But two left. Yeah. How, I'm sure that didn't affect the baseball game that much. Still, yeah, just remove a player from each team. There's yes. still plenty of people left, yeah. Also, another thing that Ricky says at one point is he's annoyed about um, Meg around this time. She gets, she goes mad at Angela again, throws Angela at the water. And Ricky says, we won't let them get away with this, that's for sure. Again, it's like trying to plant these seeds for the audience of you know who the killer could be. I just didn't find any of it very convincing. But did you? Was there any kind of suspect you had in mind at this time? Because we're getting on in the film now. Yeah, we're getting fairly on. Well, this with this film, it was very much like when I watched The Sixth Sense for the first time. I know, you obviously, you knew the. I, I knew the twist, and I knew what what it was going to be. But trying to trying to like clear my mind and watching it, I, I had a very good idea who it was, and I didn't. Yes. I didn't feel any of the people that were being kind of pushed as the red herrings. The red herrings. I didn't feel like any of them were. There's just not enough reason for them to be the killer, I didn't, I felt. So, yeah, Meg throws Angela in the water. Mm-hmm. 
And then does Mel not confront the thing again? Because Ricky tries to save her, and then Mel's almost angry at him for doing that. He's like, oh, every time, every time yeah, he gets that, in trouble, that, you try to save her. Yeah, that's the scene where Mel... Yeah, it's like, well, he's your, his cousin. Of course he tried to help her. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. Mel's a dick. He's a total knobhead, isn't he? Yeah. Funny enough, Mel's, you know what Mel's surname in the movie is? It's is it? Caustic. Caustic. Sounds like caustic, meaning like severely critical yeah. or sarcastic, yeah. It's a very, very appropriate name. Also, the word caustic in some translations literally means constipated. Oh, he does look constipated. <laughs> he does that very uptight look. But there is, there is, uh, Mel almost seems an anti-Semitic character while being Jewish. This is an actual common complaint of the film because people have said themselves he seems like the like a, a stereotypical character of somebody's negative opinion of a Jewish guy. Oh, or like what? Well, like his character was written by someone who just hates Jews and wants to push that image. I'm not saying the writer hates Jews, Wayne. No, no, that, that was your words. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, but that's what that's what some people actually complain. That is about. one of the complaints because the character he's. You know, there's Jewish stereotypes about you know, over money and yeah. uh, oh, they've been around. They've been around forever. No, yes, I, and I, I, how he won't close the camp. He's just thinking the turn of profit, etc. He's trying to brush off any death as just an accident. Yes. But at this point, not that many people have been killed. Re, if he's dead, Artie, if he's dead, and there Bill, was Billy and Ke- Kenny. Kenny as well. Yeah, so it's not many people, like you yeah. say. Definitely enough for a baseball game. And Re, Re, uh, kind of he deserved it. Yeah, but this is kind of leading towards because like we're into the third act now. Yes. And at this point, um, Meg has got a date with Mel. Oh, for still, fuck's sake. still do not understand what's going on there. And Judy seems very happy for her. And this is what I was saying earlier. There's a moment where Mel's like, "Oh, I got a date." It's like, "Oh, I won't say." And Judy does a smile. And again, it seems like a very genuine smile. But Judy's now here on her own. Well, she had, she had a guy with her. Yes, and she hid him under the bed. And usually. she hid him under the bed, which is very original. Yes. But um, he just buggers off, doesn't he? Because he's, what's he worried about getting caught? Caught by, because Mel came in and was on about Meg. He's worried about someone coming Okay, back so here. explain this to me, because I'm at a loss, <laughs> to, to be frank. What does Mel have over Meg? I don't know. And why are the names so similar? You think that's why? <laughs> is that it? Because their name is one letter different? No, I'm saying why is their name so bloody similar? Because remember, it's M-E-G. That's how, oh, you, that's how, that's how you spell her name. That's how you knew she was the bad bitch. I, I don't know. that. I, it, it's hardly like, oh my God, she's attracted to his power. I mean, he's the lead camp counsellor. Do you think it's his handsome this way? No. No, I, I wasn't <laughs> going with that either. Ouch, sorry. But no, there's nothing, there's nothing there. It just felt very unconvincing. It felt like it was just one of those things so later on... Uh, something bad could happen and then we could have the consequences of it. Well, Wayne, do you know what? Mm-hmm. That bad thing is about to happen. It does. Because what happens is Angela watches as Meg goes to the shower. Mm-hmm. And at that, this... That's almost like trying to cast suspicion because she kind of watches her the whole way as she goes mm-hmm. to the shower. This is the closest the film gets to its stalking thing that you were saying earlier. Yeah. And um, <laughs> to Meg, a point. Meg's killed because she stood in the shower and what, like a knife comes through she, the wall? Yeah, Meg goes for a shower because she's preparing for a date with uh, Mel. For some reason, poor poor woman. Yeah, uh, maybe she killed herself knowing this. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Actually, this is seems to be one of the only kind of stereotypical slasher kills of the yes, film because it it's with a knife. Because everything else is kind of these other methods, but this is the only one with a knife. It's literally a slash. It's literally a slash. It's literally yeah, a slash because it's even slashes through the whatever that material is round the shower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we go through there. Stabbed her right in the back, isn't she? Mm-hmm. And she's collapsed. She collapses. Mm-hmm. No, we j- yes. Yeah. Paul meets Angela again. And yeah. honestly, I thought I was getting more annoyed with Paul because his apologies are so half-assed. Yeah. It's totally rubbish. And she invites him down to the waterfront. Oh. And if I, I don't know if I, were you, I was Paul, I mean, I know he likes Angela and everything, but I was thinking I'd be a bit more suspicious than this. 
Why would you be suspicious, Wayne? Well, it's because of all the stuff that's happened between them. Suddenly, oh, let's go down to the waterfront. I mean, what happened to the last time they went down the waterfront? That didn't end yeah. well. Well, not as bad as this is possibly going to end here. But you know what? Mm-hmm. Mel actually discovers Meg, mm. who well, weirdly conveniently falls out the shower just as Mel enters. That's great. That It's like that, you know, when you open a cupboard and there's been a body in there, it just falls out like, yeah. as they come out. How yeah. do you know that? I don't know that. That's, uh, <laughs> uh, no comment. No comment. <laughs> Seen it quite a lot of times. Don't give away films. your secrets. <laughs> but he rants about, because when he sees that Meg is dead, his date is dead, which he's maybe better off. <laughs> he rants about Ricky never getting away with it. Yeah, he says, I knew, so I knew it was that. But I thought Mel was more annoyed that now he can't shack up with Mel. I think, that probably I think is that's why he was so annoyed. Yeah. What I started to think of it is, at this point in the film, you've got Mel who's looking for Meg, Judy's off with, uh, like Judy's had some guy with her, a bunch of the young kids are out camping, Angela's off on the water meeting Paul. Does it seem like suddenly there's a lot of stuff going on? Because beforehand it was quite simple, but suddenly everything is all happening, all these plot threads are all happening at once. I can sum that up for you, Wayne. Hmm? It's act three of a slasher film. <laughs> That's exactly why. What, we need to get the characters into we, the... we need to get moving. We need to get some kills. We need to get to a resolution. That's get, what's happening. Yeah, we need to get the characters in position, yeah. and Because Mel finds Meg's body, still thinks it was Ricky. She thinks it's Ricky for some reason. Mm-hmm. So, and but, 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 but... Judy dies now. Yeah, and that's an interesting the shadowy. Kill. Here's one. There's a shadowy figure at the door, but it's not very much shadow. You see the face. Mm-hmm. Why did it look like Ricky in a wig? Because... It is Ricky in a wig. It is Ricky. It is Ricky the character Jonathan. It's Jonathan Tierston in a wig. Literally stood there, which I didn't notice the first time. The second time when I watched it, and I because it's only briefly on screen, but now with the benefit of you know DVD, Paul, yeah, yeah. DVD and home releases, yeah, you can pause and you can look closer. I'm like, oh yeah, that's actually him in a wig. Could they not have put him more in shadow then? Because you can clearly see his face. They probably should have. They does. You can clearly see his face. And again, it does that. Uh, does Judy not do the whole? Oh, it's you. Thing yeah, again. Judy says, "Oh, it's you. What yeah. do you want?" Yeah. And uh, this figure just punches Judy. Yeah, this is a pretty brutal kill, actually. It's uh, like a it's sm- all done in shadow as yeah, well. I like a, that. Yeah, it's a smothering of the pillow. So he puts the pillow over and then essentially violates her with a hair straightener. He violates her? Yeah. Which is, yeah, he does, yeah. Which is strange because, see, when her hands go straight up yeah. in there, which is weird because like, her hands never fight. She's like, ah! Yes. Like, hands are going up. Hand like, shadows. Yeah, like a Frankenstein coming back to life kind of thing. Sorry, Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster. Get it right, <laughs> yeah, Wayne. For all you... For hey, <laughs> when, you, when you're doing a podcast, Wayne, I'm having no inaccuracies on my yes. watch. Sorry, I've, I've tried semantics. I know we have to do semantics, yeah. yeah. But her, her hands go straight up and... That's the end of Judy. Did you like that kill? Did you think it worked better than the more on-screen deaths? Yeah. Obviously, it's still on-screen, but it's yeah. it's a shadowed against a wall. No, it's it's fine when deaths are kind of kind of shown, like, implied and don't have to be graphically shown. Shadow puppets. Shadow puppets. Yeah. Yes. That's actually a lot of time. I I would praise a film for doing something like that. You you what you think by um, concealing the death in such a way? Mm-hmm. Do you find it more effective because you're not necessarily seeing the hokiness? Yeah, we don't have to see the goreness because again, if they couldn't have... Well, there's they... not much gore in this film. Well, there's not loads of gore, no. Yeah. But again, if you tried to do that and tried to show it fully, there'd be you know complications yes. with you know like prosthetics and uh, practical effects. And by doing it this way, you still have the kill because it's obviously what's happened. You just don't have to show it actually physically happening. Here's one, Wayne. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of the score of this film? Uh, Very unslashery, wasn't it? It almost seemed a classic, classical, yeah. didn't it? The most, the most slashery thing about it was at the very start, where in the build-up to the yes. title screen, there's like a do, and then the title appears, and it goes, bam! I'm, I'm, I'm like, ah, sleepaway camp, big orchestral, yeah. And then, and then, and then it kind of just kind of fades, and then, uh, and it just fades into a camp. So, no, I thought the score was fairly unremarkable. I think what it was, um, 
what was a departure from usual 80s slashers or even Halloween in 78 is slashers were kind of moving into a almost like a minimalistic synth, synth score, wasn't it? Yeah. Whereas this is kind of very classical and orchestral. It is, yeah. It's very, it's very strange. So I'm, it's completely different to, you know, your typical slasher yeah. soundtrack. So it's got that going for it anyway. It's yeah, very yeah. different. <laughs> but anyway, we're into our final things here. And is it Gene that's off with a bunch of little kids? They've gone camping in the woods, and clearly they don't want to be there. I think they're complaining the whole time. This is the weirdest time to go camping, Wayne. It is. I would keep. I would keep everybody together. Are all the kids dead? They are all dead because, well, well, we see that their um their sleeping bags have been slashed, so we have to assume that they're thing jig. You know, Wayne. After all we've discussed, I'd be absolutely distraught if Camp Arawak reopened. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing there's a sleepaway too. <laughs> sleepaway camp too. Yeah. Three. But- but, well, yes, well, there are, but, you know, we'll get to them a Was bit it later. at Camp Arawak? Camp Arawak. I think it was at Camp Arawak, yeah. I so t- this place never closes, yeah. even after all this? I'd hate to be this person's, this person's PR boss. Well, how do you, <laughs> how do you spin that? Maybe have a hell of a lot, have a lot of spin. But, well, the kids, a bunch of the kids died, but, you know, they had a great time when they were alive. Well, Yay. <laughs> there's something to be said for Joy Wayne. Yes, there's a... It's, sil- it's not always the end. No. It's, the, it's, the, it's the journey. These things have a silver lining. Uh, at this point, not silver lining here, but Mel confronts Ricky and basically beats him half to death. He beats him. I think uh, Mel actually thinks he's killed Ricky. I, I, I think. I he, think the intention was murder. Because again, we don't see it. It's again, it's the thing where he's on the ground <laughs> and you have the hand coming down over yes. and over again. And uh, I did feel almost at this point there was a kind of sense of escalation. I know you haven't. Felt yeah, this yeah, we're, of, we're escalating. I think it's because at this point, so many things are happening at once. It's kind of a kind of rapid. We're rushing to the denouement now. Basically, we are. Yeah, we're trying to get to the end. We're trying to yes. get to the. We, we, we're going. We, we've jumped off the cliff and now we're nearly in the water. <laughs> yes. We're about, we're about to start sinking. We're, yeah. we're, our, our toes are dipped. Yeah, and at this point, all the campers and the counselors get back together again, which is what they should have done earlier. Yes. And then we get we get our kill of Mel, which, bit silly. Arrow through the... Well, he says, it can't be you. Yeah. When he realises it's not Ricky. Again. It do, can't be you. No names, but that is a very good shot by Andrew. Uh, very good shot by the killer there, by the way. Who were you about to say, Wade? Were you uh, about to... Were you about to nobody, do, nobody, nobody, nobody. Nope. Nope. Definitely didn't start with an A. No, you were de- te- definitely saying Arrow. Uh, <laughs> Ricky. Uh, Arrow through the neck. <laughs> Arrow through the neck. And then who comes back? Uh, a cop comes back. Is that the cop from earlier, Wayne? What? What? The cop that has a moustache? Well, he did have a moustache. Well, he does. He does have a moustache. Because now you could have fooled me. But yeah, but this is a real. This is a real moustache. Because he, has he definitely here. has something on his lip. Absolutely, this is a real moustache. It's not a different color. It doesn't look like it was taped on. What is that, Wayne? <laughs> what the hell is that? Well, if you can't tell by the dripping sarcasm in our voices, this actor had a moustache earlier, yes. but then. I believe shaved it off and then was brought back to do this scene so he had to tape it on which look would have been fine if you'd kept him at kind of a distance and had him in the shadows but there's close-up shots of his face there is one shot and I will give them this when he first does arrive at well the second time he arrived when all these killings have gone on they shoot him from a medium angle exactly. and it's not too obvious yeah but there is a scene a few minutes later when they push into a close-up yeah. and it's like all right that's a rat on his lip for me that was just inexcusable it looks like again it looks like he's just duct taped the thing on yes he's going full groucho look if he just come back and you'd throw a line in about how we just went and shaved his mustache because he didn't like it that would have solved the problem or not having a close-up of his bloody face would that take away from you know the nuanced subtle storytelling though Wayne? if mm. a cop randomly just has to refer to yeah maybe I, I would, maybe i wouldn't take him seriously as a police officer if he didn't if have he, a mustache didn't have a mustache because it's the 80s way and you have yes. to have a moustache if you're a police officer moustaches are very authoritative especially yes. in these kind of films there's always the one with a moustache um, and at this point right 
again, we're getting close to the end now. Paul is meeting Angela down on the beach. Yes. And Angela, Paul's like, let's go, uh, Angela, let's go swimming. Paul says, what about her clothes? And she says, take them off. He's very quick to take his clothes off, Wayne. He's very, very happy. Yeah, at this point, I thought, oh my God, <laughs> this is not going to end well for you, mate. Uh, and Ricky's found alive. Ricky's kind of a. Is it by the cop he's found, is it? Maybe? Yeah. What, the cop with the mustache? The non mustache. The not mustache mustache. Mustache, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's found. He's like got blood in his face, but he's coughing, so he's still so alive. So he's still alive. Uh, that was an accident, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah. That Mel totally didn't mean to hit him. We can keep the camp open because it was an accident. <laughs> and then they all go because Ronnie's there. Um, well, basically, the surviving characters are Mr. there. Mr. Universe. Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Go down with his offensive fashion. They go down to the beach, and Paul and Angela are both there. She's cradling a naked Paul. Mm-hmm. She's, she's got him in his lap, on her lap. Sorry. And she's humming. She's like humming a tune. As all creepy kids do. And then, of course, we get a flashback, which is, again, by far the most talked about uh, part of the film. And we're back to Dr. Martha. Back to Dr. Martha. This is the beret-wearing, mm-hmm. off-Broadway, <laughs> hamming up actress, mad, Dr. Martha. Mad scientist, yeah. and She always wanted a little girl, didn't she? Yeah. I've always, no, I always wanted a little girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. again, and, better acting. Uh, and you've got you've got this kid here. She's got something on her head, and then because the idea is this kid's actually called as a totally a Peter. Peter. She, she's Peter, and he calls her Angela. So basically, what's happened is after the accident, because the I'm original guess, accident, there was an accident. Yeah. Yes, the Martha forced Peter, one of the survivors, to live as a girl. And that girl is. And that girl is Angela. It is Angela. Who, it turns out, you're never going to believe this, she was the killer all along. Angela was the killer. Yeah, because uh, there's a famous shot where she stands... Do you want to know how we um, tell the people how we actually physically see Angela is a boy? Well, yeah, she stands up and does a... What is she doing, roaring? Because, well, the, the other counsellors in that, you know, Mr. Universe, muscle, offensive <laughs> fashion man, they're running towards this beached area where Angela, and now the head of Paul is. Because mm-hmm. when she was cradling Paul, when she gets up, his head rolls off. He's decapitated. He'd been decapitated. Another kind of slashery kind of kill you. I don't know how she would have done that. I'm not sure. It was very bloodless decapitation. With a bee's nest, I suppose. Yeah. Knowing Angela. Yeah. Must have been some allergic reaction. Yeah, and she stands up and she like she does this weird kind of roar thing. And she we, almost looks like a werewolf. Yeah, and we pull out and it turns out... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, again, it turns out Angela is a boy. Well, she's very evidently a boy. Evidently a boy, because they took a, basically a guy's body and then put like a cast of uh, Phyllis Rose's face on top. And so that's how they achieved that effect. Do you know how they got that guy to do that scene? Did get For the climactic final scene, a local college student had to shave his body and mm-hmm. stand naked on the waterfront wearing a plaster mask of Angela's face for the long shot. It said he was so nervous, apparently the guy had to be plastered drunk mm-hmm. in order to do the yeah. scene. Another funny thing somebody pointed out, when they're approaching Angela and Paul sitting on the beach, if you look over, there's like some bleachers next yeah. to the lake, you see somebody moving around. Someone has said, that's actually the Angela standing, getting undressed, ready to do the scene. Oh, He's Christ. actually in the background while they're doing it. Oh. And um, Could you do a scene like that? What's, again, if you're plastered, I suppose it wouldn't be so bad. Well, yes, but yes. Um, when it comes to this, could you argue, because of all this, Martha's maybe kind of the villain? She's what, like the e- almost like the evil scientist kind, kind of, of yeah. character. I suppose you the one who's that, pulling yeah. the strings. Basically, you could say that because something that I was thinking about this film is every person because Angela revealed as the killer now. Every person that Angela killed, she was essentially bullied by. So I'm thinking this forced transition she was made to go through. I'm thinking she would have kind of killed people anyway because they were bullying her. Do you think? Yeah, it's one of those things where it's almost like she just took revenge against her bullies. So it's like this is. You could almost say this is kind of a superfluous twist. 
I wonder what happened in the second one because other the guy that was saw the second. Didn't no, we? it's it's Angela again, but she's played by a totally different actress. There was several sequels, only one of which was made by Robert Hiltzik, and that was in uh, two thousand and eight. Oh. It was called Return to Sleepaway Camp. It was actually filmed in 2003 and sat on the shelf for five years. I'm guessing this went direct to video. Yeah, it did, yeah. That's you know, that's that's a bad sign. Five years on the I shelf. I think a lot of the sequels went direct to video. Yeah. And Angela, like, Felissa Rose, I think they did. Felissa Rose was in was in it, like, kind of briefly then. So was Jonathan Tierston, who plays Ricky. They come back oh, in yeah. it. And from what I've heard, it's a totally pointless sequel. It's just, just no reason to exist. Again, Camp Arrowhead. No, it's a bit called Camp Manabi. So it's a different camp. Ronnie's back. Ronnie's back. I think his Mr. Fashion, Muscles. I think his fashion sense had improved. Is he still so muscular? Much. Still pretty muscular, yeah. Still been hitting the gym, so. I hope he's changed his attire. Yes, he has, yes. He dresses much that. more appropriately, so. He's not obscene now. Yeah, so. So, yes, uh, there's been issues with this film, apparently, in retrospective, about yeah. the, you know, the gender and identity politics. A lot of people have had things to say Did about you it, yeah. th- what, what, what's your? Do you have a take on that, or, or do you just kind of remove yourself from those kind of conversations? Sort of, yeah. I think, for me, a lot of the talk around the twist for me a lot of it is just she was uh peter was forced to go through this transition obviously a very traumatic event yes a lot of what happened in the movie was like angela was killing people because she was getting bullied yeah so it's like it wouldn't even have mattered if this had happened to her anyway but i'm guessing this is what's kind of messed her head up and made her like psychotic i guess you could say so what do you think the 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 identity politics is supposed to facilitate. Is it supposed? Is it just a way of making Angela different, so she feels different, and that makes her more insular? And because she's more insular, that's what causes her to be bullied. Is the the transition of sorts just to facilitate the bullying for the plot? I think it probably yeah. is. Yeah. Well, I've heard pe- some people saying their problem is is the implication that that transgenderism automatically equates to. Basically, being like being a psychopath, being a killer, being or, or, or the or the gay uncles is supposed to represent some kind of dysfunction that she's later be, she's became dysfunctional exactly. of sorts. That's Al- the implication. Yeah. Almost like saying that rather, you know, if, if you have two fathers, bad thing going to happen to you. Yes. Life. but yeah, yeah, I think it's the fact that she was bullied, the fact she was treated so badly. That's that on its own would have been enough for her to. I mean, like most people wouldn't have got, gone to that lens, but we know it's well documented the horrific, you know, side effects, like yes. effects of bullying. So yeah, yeah. I think it could just have been a bullying story. But again, I think that's what it ultimately is. But I, I don't think the the, the the intentions of the the, the creators of the, or the makers of this was to make a serious character study. It's use, using these tropes of like bullying of identity politics in its time, which is eighty three. And it's just using those little nuggets dropped here and there to facilitate a, a, a slasher film by the numbers, isn't you it? You think a lot of it is just shock factor, basically. I think so. I think it's taken things what at that time, especially, were taboo. And and it's given it a selling point. It's almost using those topics as a selling point. To somewhat, some... somewhat exploitative, you it could say. It is exploitative, yeah. yeah. Now, do we have an issue with that? I mean, you put things into context of the time. Mm-hmm. Of, of course, Luke, identity politics has always been a sensitive matter for people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we're here is to cri- critique mm-hmm. in sorts, dis- discuss and deep dive this film mm-hmm. as it is a piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. So how does it hold up to you? For me, I enjoyed watching the film. You enjoyed it. Like you say... There's not a lot of tension because, again, there's not much escalation. It's basically a bunch of random stuff happens and there's a kill, random stuff, kill, etc. But I like some of the performances, especially Jonathan Tierston. Right. Um, 
Who was Ricky? Ricky, yes. yes. I don't think it did enough to to stand out because again, when you have the golden age here, you have a dirge of these yes. films, and you had some very good ones. My bloody yeah. Valentine is terrific. Mm-hmm. The Burning, the Pro- uh, the Prowler. Yeah, but I'm trying to think if this film didn't have its famous twist ending, which is what most people talk about, would it have been remembered at all? Would it have even made as much of a, as a splash in the horror film community? Well, that, that's what I was just about to ask you. Does this film live without the the gender politics? I'm not exactly sure, but. Does it work as just a by-the-numbers slasher? Do the kills stand out? Because at the end of the day, regardless of what you think of horror or what you're looking for in horror, when it comes to slasher, a lot of these films live and die by the kills. I'm not even sure the kills are even that stand out. There's some fairly fairly decent ones, but a lot of time... Poorly executed. And what I will say is if you're you're looking for progressiveness in a film, I'm not sure a cheap slasher from the early 80s is the place to go for it. There's only so much you can expect from that. Well, I, I, look, look, we re-examine these things as time goes on, and even some slashers you could almost call progressive now because, you know, it's always the final girl. The final girl triumphs over typically a, a male mm-hmm. on her own, without help, without the police. Mm-hmm. So usually these things, I mean, if you're going to reappropriate meaning of something, you can in a way suggest that some slashers in a roundabout way, regardless if that was the intention or not, can be called, uh, you know, to a point, like a feminist. Mm-hmm. Well, they, were point. Somewhat, they were somewhat empowering. because In, of- a, in a subversive way, because the, the, the final girl, she takes control. Mm-hmm. She's the last one left. She doesn't rely on anybody's help to... Mm-hmm to kill the ultimately usually male body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how do you feel about this film then overall? It, it was okay. It, I had seen it so long ago, but that by the time I rewatched it for this podcast, all I really knew was the twist ending. Yeah. To me, and I seem to be in somewhat of a minority here because a lot of slasher film fans absolutely love this film. There's no denying it. It's got a great, huge cult following. It does, yeah. I don't know if that's warranted. I don't really know how... It's not scary. No. The kills are subpar, regardless. So I don't really know what it's living on. I don't understand what's causing the longevity. Is it the campiness, the silliness? Is it the just the twist ending? Is it just the twist ending? So the basically, the takeaway from both of us is this movie has, you know, it wasn't that impactful in its day, but it has a very big cult following, but we're not, Having gone back through it, having deep dived, having examined yes. it, we're not entirely sure why it's remained so popular all these years later. And the thing is, is it living on as much as its cult legacy suggests? Because it's not a huge franchise property like a Halloween or a Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm, yeah. The fact that none of the sequels were even close uh, to... Most of them success. were straight to video. Most of them straight to video. Most of them didn't even feature any members of the original cast. A lot of them really didn't have anything to do with Angela or like um, Camp Arawak at all. What I will say for it is, for my first rewatch for this film, for doing this podcast, I enjoyed it for what it was. Mm-hmm. For me, the formula... Well, the formula is the same pretty much on every slasher film. Mm-hmm. The content of this film didn't really hold up for me. So once you take the twist ending out, yeah. it essentially takes all of the air out of the film. Yes. So yeah, for me, I'd say... I don't know if I necessarily... I wouldn't say, right, go out and watch it now. I'd say, if you get the chance, I'd maybe consider checking it out. All I'd say is, do not expect anything groundbreaking. Don't expect anything too special. Don't expect much you haven't already seen from countless other slasher films that were made around this time 
primarily Friday the 13th. Yeah, uh, my recommendation would be to a very, very niche market, I think. I think this will work if maybe you're a little a younger viewer, you're still in your teens, you're in that maybe alternative phase where you're really into horror flicks, and maybe you've never come across this one yet. In that case, if you've not saw it and you're a slasher film fan, an 80s slasher film fan specifically, I'd give it a watch. Mm-hmm. I can't guarantee you'll like it, but it'll leave somewhat of an impression. So I can recommend it insofar as that much. Right, so we'll say for this one, we'll say two recommendations with some reservations. Lukewarm reservations. Yes. You've been listening to episode 14 of In Film We Trust. Once again, I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. Join us next week where we will discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream.